TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Ben Watson of Herman Miller about how design affects people who never even think about design. I ran a marathon and didn't chafe my legs, or I sat at my workplace for a long eight-hour day and my back is healthy rather than sore. Although we may not be thinking of those things as the result of great design, they are the result of great design. Here's Debbie Millman. Over the years, Herman Miller, the modern furniture manufacturer, has changed the way we work and live. The company is justly celebrated for working with some of the world's best designers and to bringing to the market some of the iconic products of modern design. How do you get to work at a place like that? Well, in Ben Watson's case, he seems to have spent his career inadvertently preparing for his job as Herman Miller's executive creative director. Ben Watson lives in Brooklyn, commutes frequently to Michigan, where Herman Miller has its main office, and he has a cabin, but otherwise he works in their satellite office in Manhattan. He joins me now at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Ben Watson, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. It's a huge pleasure to be here. So I understand you never set an alarm. Why is that? <laughs> it's, in the scheme of things, a relatively recent commitment. By relatively recent, I can say pushing a good 10 years now. You make it and, sound like you're 90, <laughs> Ben. <laughs> you're probably not even breaking 40, and now it's like a quarter of your life you're talking about. It's um, a huge release of pressure for me to not have an alarm. Somehow, when you sleep and you know the alarm is going to go, I think it's always in your head and you don't sleep as well. And I simply can't be in bed more than seven and a half, eight hours. So just go to bed early enough to give yourself the amount of rest you need. So your body just ordinarily wakes up after seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. So no matter what, you're okay as long as you get that amount of time. Wow. I've never been able to wake up at a specific time without an alarm clock. I I would sleep through anything. That's how much I love to sleep. 
So <laughs> where did you grow up, Ben? I actually uh, grew up in a handful of spots, all in the upper Midwest. So I was born in a tiny town in the upper peninsula of Michigan by the name of Calumet. It's on the little finger that pokes out into Lake Superior. I think we averaged over 300 inches of snow a year. Wow. And had a five-year stint on the prairies of South Dakota as a grade schooler and then returned back to Upper Michigan for my high school years. So it's sort of wonderful symmetry then to be back in Michigan for quite a lot of time working with Herman Miller. Did it, you plan It that? is interesting. I, when I left at age 18 and moved to Boston, if I didn't speak the words out loud, I sure thought them, I'm never going back there. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved to Boston to go to Harvard. Yes. And what made you decide to go to Harvard just because it's Harvard? Or was there a specific reason for going in a specific course of study that you were intending to do? It's a story I should be careful telling, perhaps. But I was fortunate enough to get a, of all things, a scholarship to attend Harvard from the Harvard Club of New York, and I had zero connectivity to the. To How did New you York manage City. that? Well, they, they That's picked my, I think they picked my name out of a hat. How did you get your name in the hat to begin I, with? Somebody in the admissions office sent my name to the hat, I guess. And so I had to write an essay to be published to the mailing list or the donors of the Harvard Club of New York is to, hey, tell us about who you are and what you, how you're going to use our money wisely while you're studying. So I wrote a little essay and at age 18, and I found it not so long ago. And I concluded the essay by saying, I plan to pursue a career in economics or fashion design, which was they should have known right away that this kid doesn't know what he wants to do. Well, but it certainly actually, but shows actually, quite a lot of range. But I think it actually – it's exactly what I do today. I was actually going to say that. That's, <laughs> that is what you do today, your fashion and economics. Mm -hmm. So you graduated from Harvard and I believe that your first job out of college was at Vitra? No, I went directly to Knoll. Oh. Uh, so I had – I actually did my thesis work on the Lachaise design of the Eames, which is the molded fiberglass white single-piece lounge, which you can sit in two ways, either as a seat or as a lounge chair. I knew I had a big furniture Jones and pursued the folks at Knoll and spent my first few years there until I joined Vitra, more or less, when they entered the American market. So you did your thesis on a single piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. For those that might not be familiar with the chair, what makes that particular chair worthy of an entire thesis? The Eameses as alone are worth countless theses, and I'm sure are, oh, are, absolutely. are the center yes. of them. But, but one <laughs> yeah. single piece of furniture, mm -hmm. this is a thesis on one chair. With hindsight, I could say it was my, my love affair with the sculptural quality of the piece. Their dreamed-of material innovations um, were actually, uh, not surprisingly, ahead of what could be uh, well executed at the time. And the piece was never actually put into production until the 80s. That fascination of the desire to push things so hard that they're not actually quite possible, that's strangely appealing to me. And also materially that it's a almost impossible combination of fiberglass, of metal supports, and a crafted carved wooden base is a wonderful harmony of industry and craft. So after Noel, you went to work at Vitra, where you were both the VP of Sales and Marketing and then the Global Marketing Director. What was it like to spend your time working to understand and then also help 
convey what was so special about really special furniture. I look back at my tenure history at Vitra as a really special time for me and the special things that I learned there that have helped me moving forward is to become a translator. And so that's a word that your question brought to mind for me. At the time, um, Vitra was a brand that was unknown in the States and was relatively strong in in Central Europe. But its creation as a furniture company was based on the designs of the Eames, and yet those products couldn't be represented in the American market because a miller distributes them here. And so how can you translate a design ethos, which means one thing in, in Europe, and tell that story or translate it to an audience in a way that it's powerful and meaningful? How did you do that? By being honest and transparent. In and, what way? And like, I think, can you give us some that, examples? That... I think it's um, – I'm a big believer in the strength of stories and how we learn through stories and that stories add on top of one another. And the the culture of Vitra in that time had a great many stories and their number of stories is always – continues to grow, whether it's the – their commitments to the campus and the architecture that's there, the story of the collection in the Vitra Design Museum, the stories of the new products in design and development. So there were a great many stories to tell that could be powerful to design enthusiasts in the Americas. And so it's translating those stories in a way that they can be easily absorbed, understood, and embraced by the audience you want to talk to. So after 10 years at Vitra... Beginning in 2001, you went to Nike as vice president and global creative director in apparel. So you're going from furniture to fashion. How did you make that change? How did you get the job at Nike? What was the job like and about? Yeah, it was crazy the amount of things that I needed to learn to move into a whole new industry. Why I'm so thankful that I pushed myself to do that is... The world of furnishings is more like consumer goods than we might think, and we need to think about it more in those terms, I believe. Why do we have to do that? Why do you think that that's changed so much? I think the the notion that we can spend five years or ten years developing a new product, um, by five or ten years from now, the world will be a very different place. So the speed of change in our world is so extraordinary that we need to be able to understand the human needs that are both today and in the near future and solve those and bring them to market promptly. If there was one lesson I I learned at Nike, it was being extraordinarily customer-focused. They know their customer really, really well, and they work really hard to understand everything about their day and their life and then find the right ways to serve them in their life. Have you taken um, a lot of the learning from your time at Nike and brought it to Herman Miller? Yes. In what way? Pushing to be extraordinarily customer-focused. So my task at Herman Miller today is to think about everywhere we touch our customer. So that means both the design content of our products, all of our brand design efforts. So whether we're designing a a website, a showroom, a shop, a trade show, um, a photo shoot or brochure, as well as all of our marketing teams and efforts in support of all of our businesses. So the actual marketing strategies, and we've actually 
uh, undergone significant changes to change our marketing structure and approach to be customer-focused rather than just product-focused. Let me tell a story about this product, and I hope it hits somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just but, target everyone. But, yes, and instead to say, gosh, I'm just as committed to developing powerful, innovative products, but actually, who are they for? Where are those people um, looking, reading, shopping, um, learning? Those people are important to me. How am I going to meet them in those places? So for the last five years, you've been the executive creative director at Herman Miller. Herman Miller is, of course, the company known for revolutionizing the way that office furniture and spaces work. What's it like to work under the halo of great designers like Charles and Ray Eames or George Nelson? What is it like to feel those presences and everything that you do? Yeah, I, I don't mind or I don't hesitate saying that I've got the best job in the world. I'm, I feel extraordinarily fortunate to be able to have all that history, all those assets, all that strength to work with. And it makes my job a great joy and also infinitely easier. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you been influenced by their design ability, their design talent? Is the Are the assets that you're talking about something that has seeped into the way you approach design? The last creative director at the company was actually Mr. Nelson. And he left the company and the planet in the 80s. Of course, those are impossible shoes to fill. But his writings have become a great inspiration for me. It was, I think, wildly underappreciated as a thinker and a scholar and as an intellectual. I worked to be a student of his in terms of how to think, how to think about how economics and design meet specifically in the world of Herman Miller. So this job that you have was a newly created position, which they created specifically for you. At the time, you had been at the helm of your own agency. How did they persuade you to close your doors and come join them in this brand new position that had, hadn't really existed in many decades? It was a good two-year conversation. Really? Brian Walker, who's the CEO of, of Herman Miller, uh, over uh, many dinners and many conversations, I became completely convinced of his determination to return design to the center of Herman Miller and his honest request for me to do my best to try to help the company do that. And in five years, I've only seen that commitment grow. And so I, I see it as a fantastic project that I have a chance to work on. We spoke a, a moment ago about all those things that Herman Miller stands for, all the assets it has due to the strength of its brand and history. How can we use all of those things, not just from the mid-century, but from right now and the future as well, to actually make Herman Miller uh, not just a great company of the past, but an equally great company tomorrow. So you say that they brought you to help bring design back to the sort of center piece of their deliverable. Had it moved away from the center? The goal is that um, design is not a bureau or a creative services entity which you turn to to solve a problem, but actually is integral to the business, which is a a uh, direct quote from, from Mr. Nelson in one of his first catalogs from the 40s. 
design is not just a product um, creation exercise, but it's a way of thinking about all the ways that you approach the business. So good design is essentially good business. You've said that helping others recognize, understand, and support these ideas, these very specific ideas, is good for design, good for the public it serves, and good for business. But how do you know when something is well-designed and that it is good design for the service or in the service of good business? There's so many variables there. One of the tasks I gave our team early on was to create a set of design tenets for Herman Miller. What are those tenets? And, Can you share them? And, and there are 10 simple tenets um, for us. And it's not about defining what is good design, but how do we define design, good design at Herman Miller? So if we are now over 7,000 people, and if design's integral to the business, then actually everybody's making design decisions every day. So does actually everyone have a simple lens that they can use? So I'll uh, mention one or two of them. Okay, thank you. We'll we'll save another program to talk about all 10. Okay, (laughs) you got it. We always start with a problem. We don't start with a fashion or a trend. We start with human need. Um, But how do you know what problems to tackle? By by, by having our eyes open in the world. Okay. Of course, there are far more problems to tackle than we possibly could. So we need to set priorities against them. But we don't – we'd start with real human need, not with um, – uh, Purple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So what is another tenant? Give us two more so we have three altogether. Another one of my favorites is that our solutions need to be beautiful and useful. And the and is the stress there because both of those are equally important. If a website is wonderfully beautiful, but it actually it's impossible to find the way to put something into your to your basket and check out with it, it's not actually useful. Or so, if it's if it's useful and it's not an elegant and beautiful experience that inspires me to spend time with it, then it's not succeeding either. So we actually have to demand of ourselves that that solutions are both of those things. The, Give us the, a juicy one. The, one, one last one. The, Give us the a last juicy one, one. And the one. The last one that we generally close with is the notion that when you have the right solution, you simply know it. Mr. Dupree talked about the idea of how do you, how do you know to quit editing, editing or to quit adding is that um, this becomes apparent to you. So it's, it's almost a spiritual or metaphysical kind of notion. Yeah, it felt like you need to have a lot of faith in mm-hmm. your opinion or your decision mm-hmm. or your signature, so to speak. Yeah. So do you really think that non-designers are interested in good design? I do. Why is that? Because uh, for those examples we, or ideas we just used, if a good design is actually helping my life in a small or better way, whether that is um, I ran a marathon and didn't chafe my legs <laughs> or I sat at my workplace for a long eight-hour day and my back is healthy rather than sore, those, although we may not be thinking of those things as the result of great design, but actually um, they are the result of great design. And do you think that people work harder or better when they're in better design spaces? Do you think I, that I think we know that for you a know fact. That. And that that's one of the exciting things that we're working on is getting to a to a new frontier of like of knowing through through data analysis of the changes when what how 
do we make changes in an environment and how do we measure desirable result against those against changes in environment? Several years ago, I was asked to be on John Hockenberry's show, The Takeaway. Um, apparently, it was the 100th, I believe, the 100th anniversary of the cubicle. <laughs> Herman and, Miller's invention. <laughs> yes. So, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So, so why was the cubicle first built and why is it still being built despite the fact that it seems that people work better in collaborative spaces? The first cubicle uh, is a, a program which we still manufacture and and deliver to customers today called Action Office. And I think it was I, the 40th anniversary. I think, I think it, was it was actually the 50th. Now it might be the 50th. Yeah. yeah. This was quite a while ago that I was that I was part of it. Action Office was born out of a large research study done by a gentleman by the name of Robert Probst who ran our research division for decades. In that particular case, Probst and his team spent tons of time really um, through on those days, particularly through observation, saying, how does work happen? So spending time in offices all over the country and saying, what's actually happening here? And 50 years ago, it was the transition of work tools. It's not just moving pieces of paper and picking up a pencil. There actually are calculators and typewriters and dictaphones. So those were the dictaphones, <laughs> mimeograph machines. So, 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 so uh, what was happening in work was changing. He also studied the human behaviors of offices, the timeliness of his observations about human behavior in the office. What does that feeling feel like when you are, if you are, your back is exposed? Um, what so, is that feeling? And, and it's, he, his research relates it to the, the comfort I have. If I'm a caveman, I'm comfortable when I'm sitting in my cave at the mouth of it and looking out. So I know that behind me, I'm all protected, um, but I'm able to I'm have a vantage to anything that's, that's coming towards me. And so what is, the, what is that? If you don't create an opportunity for folks to feel comfortable or where they are surprised by those who arrive unannounced up behind them, um, that's psychologically distressful. All of this kind of research, so both human psychological and behavioral research, as well as the actual tools and technologies of the workplace of the day, became the design brief for designing Action Office. The first generations of Action Office were the principals were having a, a very simple series of panels, which weren't intended to be at right angles to one another. Oh, really? Uh, correct. That was, that was a quote, an air quote, innovation that came later. <laughs> <laughs> air quote, indeed. Yeah. But that could be freely reconfigured in their angles and configurations, even by users, that incorporated standing height work surfaces wow. as well as seating height work surfaces. How's that for predicting it's the future? Intelligent ways to manage um, the wires that went to your dictaphone and the ways to store and to have in appropriate access the tools and materials and analog goods that um, folks would use. So whether that was a, a shelf inside my desk, a, um, a place for binders over my work surface, etc. And all those things could be easily and, and quickly changed when uh, work changed, when workers changed, or when teams reorganized. The compression of all that into the, quote, square six foot by six foot cubicle happened due to the pressure of 
the, excuse me, facility management um, discipline, which said we will pick one typical workstation that, quote, works for everyone and that will have three sides and be this dimension because it became easier to manage, not because it was better for the people working in it. So does something like that impact your morale, being in a space constructed like that? Uh, And there are countless studies that show that it does. I think the great thing is is that we are in the middle of of a large revolution of moving away from the cubicle era or of how do I find a place to house my people to actually realizing that our people are any organization's people are their most important asset and the way that they work today with the tools and technologies that they have means that it will be different for every organization there's no one uh, menu but a broad diversity of work settings that is available to everyone during the course of their day or based on the kind of work that they need to do leads to the highest rates of actual productivity, of perceived happiness, of uh, desire to remain employed, lower churn rates, all kinds of things that have positive economic impact to an organization. Do the open workspaces, sort of studio spaces, work better for people when I've been in those – and I've been in all sorts of configurations over the years, whether it be an open office, a closed office, a studio. When you're in a studio, you do feel more camaraderie, but you also feel a lot more vulnerable in terms of being protective of your work or feeling um, self-conscious about experimenting. So I'm wondering if there is – is there an, an absolute ideal space for somebody to work in? There is no one ideal, and I think that's the – is not to say we're moving from the era of the cubicle to the era of the bench or the studio. It's actually to realize, uh, and this is the result of a, all of our current psychological and workplace research, is to say for the culture and the work that happens in the bank in Midtown is very different than it is at the small software startup downtown. And those workplaces can and should be very different. And only by deeply understanding the work that's happening there can you create an ideal landscape built out of specific settings. And those settings have to be made up of the furniture that help the work, best help the work happen. If you had to design the ideal workplace for a company of, say, 100 people 10 years from now, what would you recommend doing? We just redesigned our design yard in in Michigan, which is home to about 300 of our folks. We started out with deep research. So that's everything from heat mapping of what are the highest areas of traffic. We have proprietary technology to map the use of any given place, whether it's a conference room or a workstation, that we can see, gosh, those chairs in accounting are occupied eight hours a day. Um, and but those that chairs and those chairs uh, boardroom <laughs> isn't. is never used. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we we have all these rooms, all the rooms built for twelve people only have three people in them for ninety percent of the time. So you can actually know from data how you're currently using things. There are also lots of things you can't learn from data, and we learn that from um, ethnography, actually watching behaviors and inquiring from folks what tools they need or how does their work process work. So things that people wouldn't be able to tell you because they wouldn't even know that there's a question about it. Correct. What Can you give me an example of something like that? We have teams of folks who are 
constantly building proposals for customers. And those those are writers, graphic designers, um, production folks, might look like a studio. Putting folks like that in a place where they can't easily share information, can't easily have a place to lay out the document that they're working to create, let alone bind it and get it out the door into FedEx tonight. Their set of needs is very different than a digital team who's spending 10 hours a day staring at a screen. So sort of like denial research. (laughs) (laughs) So it really boils down to really working hard to deeply understand the problem. So that would be the first thing. That's the first thing. And start building a place that's for a community because a company does have a culture and every every great community has a has a heart to it, a place that makes you feel like you belong. And if the only place where you feel you belong is your six by six cube, there won't be an, an exchange of ideas. And that's the reason workplaces exist is to have those spontaneous connections that happen. Because if all we did was to send emails back and forth to one another, we should all stay at home. Well, it's so interesting that given how much time we spend as a culture commuting, whether it be by train or by bus or by car, by bike, or we walk, it's still an amount of time that we're not necessarily being productive from a workplace perspective. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a, a higher reason for spending that time to come together to then sit alone or correspond with email because we don't even really talk on the phone anymore. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems to me that there is this deep-seated, almost wired into us need to be face-to-face when and, we're working. And we actually – there are deep-seated social needs. We all need – all in a different way but have needs to be part of a community. Our work communities are for many people the take up more time than any other community that we're a member of. Yeah, absolutely. And so how does a place support that community rather than simply becoming a a place to house workers? Right. I mean, I know that we're happiest when our brains resonate with others. Mm -hmm. And so how do we find happiness in a workplace? We have to be able to feel like we have the same values or the same mission. How do you see the popularity of the um, workspaces like WeWork or Studio Mates, how is that changing your business, if at all? I love that segue because those uh, work clubs are a fantastic example of a universe of, quote, freelancers or micro firms who say, actually, I have social needs. I really would like to be alone together. Right. I, wa- I want to be adjacent to other folks, both because I'm who I may bump into when I'm grabbing a coffee and the human energy that happens when I'm around others rather than um, sitting in my bedroom for eight hours a day. <laughs> I love how this showcases our humanity mm-hmm. as, as a culture, as a workforce, just this desire to be with other people, even if we're not necessarily collaborating. We're mm-hmm. just cohabitating. And yes. I, love, I love what I love that means too. for who we are as a, as a species. So Herman Miller seems to be evolving to a very different kind of company. In recent years, you purchased Design Within Reach. You purchased Maharam. How is that changing the culture of the organization and the priorities that you have? We're really working in several important vectors to change our ambition, not to change our values. And these big strategic shifts are are really evident in those two important acquisitions. So perhaps one of the most important is shifting ourselves from thinking of ourselves as an industry brand, 
I'm, I'm only interested in talking to corporate purchasers and architects who are making offices, to thinking of myself as a industry and consumer brand or lifestyle brand. And that shift changes our mentality, and it's connected to being customer-focused rather mm. than just product-focused. It doesn't mean that we are less interested in making, um, helping folks make great places to work. Another shift is we're changing our, our aspirations from thinking just about the office to thinking about everywhere. So we care equally about the school settings at the SVA, to a hospital, to the living room you go home to at night. And so everywhere in your day is a place where we want to help solve problems for you. And that, that's a huge change in our, in our aspiration. Right. And the teams and know-how at, at Maharam and Design Within Reach are really um, helping us do that significantly. So in 2012, Fast Company released its annual design issue and named you one of the top 50 innovators. Actually, I think you were at number three, uh, shaping the future of design. Does that include creating furniture yourself? Are you thinking about the possibility of creating new furnishings? Or are you happy working on developing furnishing through Herman Miller? My best skills are being a connector and an editor. And so I think there are many other folks in the world who are far better furniture designers than I am. And so my task is to help uh, is to find help find those folks who are the who are fantastic talents. How do you find them? In all kinds of strange, crazy ways. But by f- one needs to force yourself to have open eyes all the time, because they can come from being at a student thesis review. It can come from a, a lunch conversation where a friend says you ought to meet, to um, a stroll by a booth at a trade fair of something that catches your eye. So uh, one needs to have an open mind and open eyes all the time. And thank you for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for making our homes and offices so much more meaningful and elegant with your beautiful furniture. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainier Tika. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.